0: Good morning. I always like to be the one who does that. It's very exciting. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Tim Schoenfeld. I teach over at Belmont University and I have the pleasure of just subbing in and and teaching this morning. A special shout out to some of my Belmont people. I saw you snuck in and so I know I see you. You you didn't catch my eye. I'm there. Um, So just uh, welcome to everyone else who who may be visiting us for the the first time. Uh, I hope that uh, I don't keep you from coming back. Okay, uh, So, <laughs> as it was, it was said a little bit, uh, this weekend uh, I was able to go camping with a few brothers. Can I get a... <clears throat> from- Okay, a couple. There we go. That's fine. Um, But I wrote this sermon over a week ago. So uh, instead, let me start by saying that in the fall, we went camping in Kentucky with some other guys again here. And I feel like I'm ready to go camping. Like, I have a tent and a sleeping bag and a blow-up mat and and those small collapsible pillows. I can even start a fire if I have enough tools with me. Um, The basics, right? I can survive in the wilderness. My sleeping bag can even cover me to 20 degrees, I learned yesterday morning after the night, right? Um, But then, uh, to my surprise, I showed up, and I realized that um, Colt Mansfield is somebody who takes camping to another level. If you don't know Colt, uh, he would hate that I'm doing this, but that's that's all right. I'm going to do it anyway. Um, But you may not know this about him, but just to give you some reference, uh, when we bought our car a few years ago, we had options of attachments that we could add, like the kayak attachment to our roof or the snowboard attachment. And all of that sounded lovely, and we didn't get any of it. But no one told me you could get a log cabin attachment to your car, but apparently Colt bought one. Um, You think a ground tent is cool. He has a sky roof tent that he has a ladder to climb up to. I'm not kidding, he does. Um, I didn't go up there, but I think it may also have a hot tub. Um, I just thought, I don't know. Um, And I was ready for some hot dogs on a stick and some s'mores over the campfire, as I would normally do. And we did have some s'mores. But instead, I was surprised to see that we had a full range kitchen. And there was some flank steak that was being slow roasted with some chimichurri roasted potatoes and some kale salad. Um, And in the morning, we had breakfast tacos with chorizo and scrambled eggs, and I could go on, but it's, man, I'm starting to think I don't really know what this camping thing is actually about in the first place. Um, The point is, is I could keep going on, right? Um, But I, I thought I knew what camping was, and I thought I was ready for camping, but then I realized that there is camping, and then there's camping, right? And I thought I was ready, but then I showed up and experienced what true camping really may have looked like. Um, I was ready to have a fun overnight experience, but I was surprised when I realized I was maybe slumming it this whole time. <laughs> Before we get started, let's, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your words of wisdom and conviction. Jesus, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning, that you would convict us, that you would love on us, uh, that you would show us what true life in this world looks like as you call us to something Beautiful. It's your name, I pray. Amen. Uh, if you're able, please stand for the reading of our word. We're going to be in Matthew 25 this morning. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can clear to it. It's going to be up on the screen as well um, for you to kind of follow along. So we pick up at the very beginning of Matthew 25 in verse 1. Where it says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. So when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. You can sit down. Sorry, I realize I don't actually know what command to give you. Okay. (laughs) Before we get to this parable, and we've been in this series of parables so far, it's important as we've been doing so far to get some contextual cues on what is going into this parable in a few ways. Um, There's two I want to highlight. The first series of context is what's going on in Matthew in the verses preceding our parable today in Matthew 24. So some separate points just to bring to uh, our, our attention this morning. Jesus starts in Matthew 24, finishing a very long conversation with the religious leaders by describing the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In verse 3, it says that, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So if we take this, Jesus is now in a private conversation with the twelve, his 12 closest disciples who would go on to mostly be the great apostles to form the Christian church. His disciples had heard him talking about the destruction of the temple, and so they asked for more information. Jesus proceeds to give them, and I'll let you read it on your own, a very startling and often scary picture of what the future entails. Now, it we're not necessarily going to talk too much about that, but that could mean end times, like the apocalypse. Um, it could be referencing the second coming of the Christ, but it's also likely at least to have a double meaning, if not another meaning, of the present reality that the disciples would soon face later on in the first century of the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Roman Empire by AD 70. When is this going to happen? Because they're not there yet. They might wonder. Uh, Before they can even ask Jesus, he says in verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay, cool. So we have no idea when these terrible events are going to happen to us. So naturally, what are we to do? Jesus says in verse 42 to them, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And he goes on to tell another parable, but then Matthew 25, 25, our parable for the day, starts flowing from this conversation about the future. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like. So before we go verse by verse into this parable to understand what it means, um, who is Jesus talking to? His 12 disciples, where in private, not around thousands of other people, about what possibly end times and second coming Um, but at the very least, the near future destruction of their Jewish world as they knew it. I think these details matter, um, but before we get back to them, let's go through the story and understand it piece by piece. 25 verse 1, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Virgins go out and take their lamps to meet the bridegroom. What? (laughs) Right? Okay. So the second piece of contextual information that we need is to understand some of the aspects of the Palestinian wedding culture that Jesus and his disciples would have been among. Okay. So to understand this, let's just talk about, uh, Jordan actually talked about this a few weeks ago with the parable of the lost coin. But if you weren't there, um, I'll, I'll talk about it in just a little bit of a different way. But there were three phases to a Jewish wedding. First was engagement which was just an agreement between the families about the paired marriage. Then came betrothal, which was a binding contract of the man to the wife uh, or the future wife that a divorce, an official legal binding divorce would have to separate. But after betrothal, there would be about this year-long gap, an unknown time where the groom would come and fetch the bride, and they would proceed on to the marriage ceremony, the third phase, where there would be possibly a week or weeks long feast to celebrate the finally coming together of this couple. It would be assumed to original listeners and readers of the time that the ten virgins in this story were the bridesmaids for the bride. 10 would have been a normal number for a wedding party in that culture, and so because we don't necessarily call the bridesmaids at a wedding the virgins of the day, I will use the term bridesmaids for the most part for our modern ears. Their job was to meet the groom with lamps lit to guide the groom and his companions to the bride's house, where she would be waiting for them to begin this final phase of the processional to the wedding feast. We don't hear how, but in some way, shape, or form, the bridesmaids hear word that the groom is coming, so they go out to meet him as is custom. In verse 2, Five of them are foolish, and five are wise. For the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. Five are foolish, and five are wise. And this will be a big point in the sermon today, right? We'll get back to that. But what makes them foolish and wise in this story... Um, The foolish bring lamps with no oil, and the wise bring flasks of oil with them. Now, these lamps could have been um, kind of uh, oil-soaked torches like in Indiana Jones and other, um, you know, excavation movies like that. Excavation, that's a terrible word. Okay. Um, It also could have likely been clay vessels like this that were filled with oil with uh, a rope or a cloth sticking out the end that was soaked in the oil, and so it could be lit, just like it's seen here. Importantly, at the onset of the supposed groom's arrival, all 10 would have had a ready-made lamp that would be lit. The difference is, is that, uh, as we'll see, uh, some of them had just enough oil if the groom was going to be there as he was supposed to be, and some of them brought extra. In verse 5, we see, as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So the groom doesn't come when he was supposed to, and all of the bridesmaids fall asleep waiting. We don't know why the groom is delayed other than he just is. Somewhere in me, I chuckle at this thought that Peter and the other disciples would have heard this story about people falling asleep at the wrong time, only to know that in like a day, they would have fallen asleep in the garden while Jesus told them to stay awake. That's just, I think it's funny. It's nothing to do with this parable, but I just... Um, Verse six, at midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Woohoo! he's coming, he's finally here. It's important to say midnight does not necessarily mean 12 a.m., uh, but in this culture, midnight would be a reference to the darkest part of the night. We're gonna keep that nugget kind of filed away for us, but let's keep going in our, in our journey. Uh, Verse 7, Then all the virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. The wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. All the bridesmaids awake, and they quickly get themselves ready, but the fools have run out of oil. They don't have a lit lamp anymore. Um, The modern day, right, like, you lost the bouquet. We all know those bridesmaids, right? They ask for some oil from the wise, but there's not enough to go around. The wise suggest, uh, why don't you go find a dealer, but we're at midnight. I don't know if there's a 24-hour oil salesman just waiting for them for this exact moment. As they trim their lamps, the wise are ready to lead the groom when he arrives. The fools have to go off on a wild goose chase. In verse 10, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. So while the fools are off, hunting for oil that they likely will not find, the groom comes and takes the wise, the five wise, presumably to the bride and then to the wedding feast to begin. The door shuts behind them. After the fools come back, they say, Lord, Lord, open to us, but the groom responds with flat-out rejection. Now, this rejection is not necessarily, I don't recognize you, but it was a common saying in the day to more so just straight-up be, no, you're not coming in. It's too late. The fools are left out of this party. Jesus concludes again by saying what he had said in, verse, or in chapter 24, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. The message is clear. You want to be at the wedding feast. So be ready, because the time could be at any moment. And before we get to what the feast represents and what maybe being ready for the feast with oil may represent, um, I think it's helpful to compare and contrast the 10 bridesmaids just a little bit so we know who's what. Um, five fools and five wise are in categories, but there's a lot of overlap between the two of them. All 10 of them go out to do their job. All 10 of them have lamps that are ready for the groom when they thought he was going to come. All 10 expect to go into the wedding feast together. All 10 uh, fall asleep when things don't go how they thought they were going to go. However, this crisis, this unexpected delay, is also the thing that separates them, both in concept, but also in practice. Um, Five were ready to cope with the change in situation and five were not, they didn't have enough. And so five get to the feast and five are left on the outside. So what does this all mean? Right, this whole story of a wedding feast and the preparation for it. The most common and traditional interpretation of this parable is one towards salvation. Coming off of Jesus talking about what sounds a lot like scary end times and apocalypse, and his second coming, the wedding feast, seems like a pretty decent symbol then for heaven. This eternal celebration that we get to spend with God. One big everlasting party that we would want to be at. And many of the symbols in this story um, follow this traditional um, uh, allegory in, in a, a pretty uh, sensible way. Uh, the groom could be represented by Jesus, as much of the wedding language in the New Testament depicts as. Jesus' followers, and by extension us in the modern day church, um, are the bridesmaids. We are all invited to the party. We're all created for this. Jesus has already betrothed himself to the bride, his church, on the cross, and so we as bridesmaids are waiting for that second coming to be ushered into the kingdom of heaven. Falling asleep is often a literary device to show death, and so if the second coming hasn't, come hasn't happened yet, it's, it's likely that you know, the disciples would be long dead by now as well. And lastly, many have said that oil in this story is is some allusion to our salvation, whatever um, separates us as the saved and the unsaved, perhaps. What do we need to get into the feast to heaven? And a common interpretation, then, is that oil might represent something like the Holy Spirit, uh, that if you repent of your sins and you believe with your mouth that Jesus is the Lord and is the Christ, then you become indwelled with the Holy Spirit, as Peter describes in Acts 2. Acts 2. And upon death and upon resurrection, the Spirit is the thing that is preserving you for being ushered into the kingdom of heaven. And then those without oil, we presume, never received the Holy Spirit in the first place. And upon death and the second coming, realize it's too late, can't find oil now, and they're left out of the party. And if we make the logical conclusion to these series of events, we would assume that that might perhaps mean hell. I think the power of this allegory and interpretation is very crystal clear. I don't need to spend a lot of time unpacking it. Don't just appear to be a Christian. Don't just look like a bridesmaid, but truly be a follower. Coming to church on Sunday, singing along and taking notes does not itself set you right with God. Only true following, repentance, and faith will provide you with the oil you need to get to the feast, to light the way. A wake-up call, we might say. And for those outside of the faith, we could also say you don't want to be caught sleeping at the wrong time, because at a certain point, you can't find oil anymore. So we could set up shop and leave, (laughs) and probably my, my son would appreciate that, that we get to get him sooner, right? but um, this is where I've struggled with the past few weeks when I've been working on this uh, message is that everything that I've just said about um, being a Christian and needing to repent of your sins and receive the Holy Spirit in order to be truly recognized by Jesus and escorted into the feast, I believe that this is true in the life of the kingdom that Jesus Christ was and is the only Son of God who understood the separation that we had made between ourselves and God the Father, and he went to the cross and offered himself as a sacrifice on our behalf so that we could be reunited for God for eternity. And all we need to do to accept that invitation is be ready with oil, believe, and repent. I believe this with all of my being. But I also think that there's some reasons to suggest this might not be the main purpose of Jesus telling this story to his disciples and then now to us today. Why? First, I think it's important who the audience is. There are 12 disciples spoken in private. He was not speaking to thousands of people to purposefully let them know where they stood. If we take the parable literally, 50% of the 12 disciples make it to heaven and 50% don't. Don't think that jives. (laughs) But even if that's overanalyzing the parable, as Mark has warned us not to do, is this wake-up call for heaven what Jesus meant when he was trying to communicate his last days to his disciple? I would say that it doesn't really fit with how Jesus talked about heaven to his disciples and their place within it. And if all of this future talk that Jesus was mentioning with the destruction of the temple and, the, and, and, and onward was not necessarily about end times, but could have been about what they would have seen with their own eyes in the first century, then it's also possible that the main focus of this parable was not heaven, but now. Second, I think it's also very important that everyone had oil to begin with. To accept that oil is the Holy Spirit or whatever you need to procure salvation, it doesn't really fit as much um, with how we think about uh, the Spirit in Scripture. In John 14, for example, Jesus describes the Spirit as the helper or the advocate who will abide with us, and the word is forever. If all ten virgins had sufficient oil to have a lit lamp when the groom was supposed to be there, does that mean that the Holy Spirit can run out? Amen. Is there, even th- is there even a thing as enough Holy Spirit that we can have not enough of it? I don't think so. <laughs> it seems strange to me, right? And third, coming back to what I was saying before, this kingdom of heaven that Jesus often speaks about is less often a future off in the distant pillowy land that we will travel to. But the kingdom that Jesus preached about was here, that he ushered it in that Jesus' death on the cross brought a new kingdom that his followers have been and still are living in for the last 2,000 years. What if this parable isn't primarily about how we get to an eternal place, but what if it's about missing out on what we can experience now in the kingdom of heaven that we live in? What if the feast is something that we can do right now in this world in front of us, yet so many of us are off on a goose chase looking for other things? So what does it mean to be a wise bridemaid who brings extra oil? Because if we're missing out on the true life that Jesus calls us to in the kingdom, we would like to follow that example. The word for wise that Matthew quotes Jesus as using is the Greek word phronimos. And I'm really excited I get to use a Greek word in front of you. It's It's like, okay. This word translates simply as prudent and sensible, which is just synonyms for wise. But what I think is really cool is that the root of this Greek word is phren, which is the same root that our word for diaphragm comes from, this illusion that there's an inner muscle that regulates our livelihood. And in the same way, this Greek root of phren at the heart of wisdom here speaks to an inner substance that um, allows our outward behavior, to be wise suggests that you are built from the inside that promotes the wise decisions outside. Most of the uses of phronimos by Jesus in the Gospels is in this story. But one of the only other times he uses it is in Matthew 7, where he talks about the parable of the wise builders, builders those who build their house on the rock so that when the storms of life come, uh, they have a sure foundation. If we take that meaning of phronimos to suggest that those that are wise um, build their life on the chief cornerstone, on on Jesus Christ himself, um, then there is this inner substance of Jesus abiding within us that is able to produce this outward wise behavior. So what does it mean in our passage, though, to show phronimos, or wisdom? Wisdom. Remember that in the parable, all ten bridesmaids look the part. They all go out. They all have lamps. They all have expectations of bringing the groom to the bride and entering the feast. However, when the unexpected occurs, the groom is late. He comes at the darkest hour, the most unexpected hour, we might say. Those with phronimos are ready. They're prepared in this scenario by having extra oil just in case. And so in our parable, to be phronimos, to be a wise bridesmaid, appears to mean that we are wise when we're prepared, even for the unexpected, to do more than what had seemed necessary at the time. And in some ways, it reminds me of being a college professor, Um, Everything that we give students is a challenge for them. So you all know this as students. We give you assignments, you have to do them. We give you an exam, you have to study for it. We give you books, you have to read them, right? Everything is a challenge. And like I said, some of them are here, so I'll be, I'll be kind. Uh, but uh, some, there are different personalities and different types of students. And some of them are most concerned with, um, with if, efficiency with their studies, right? What is the maximal output that I can get with the minimal amount of time and effort? Because I'm busy. I have things to do. I have places to be. I have work and all those other things. And oftentimes, a lot of students that that care about the efficiency of their studies will, will want to know exactly what the boundaries and parameters are for an assignment or an exam or for material so that they know, hey, what do I need to do to get the grade that I want? One way we could see this is, hey, how many pages are required of me for this paper, right? Um, Is there a study guide so I know what exact questions to study so I can do the grade that I, I get the grade that I need on the exam? Thing is, none of these things are bad. It's a good use of your time to maximize it, right? Um, And if you have this targeted preparation for a grade and you achieve it, it's a win-win situation, right? Um, and the funny thing is that although you're achieving as a student at that place, um, as teachers, we, we rarely actually care about the grades of our students. That doesn't mean we want you to do bad. It just means that our, we care about something that we would consider maybe be better than grades, like knowledge, learning, things like that. That's what we would say, right? To learn means that you do everything you need for this greater good, for knowledge and critical thinking, and if you shoot for knowledge and you shoot for learning, you'll likely get an A along the way. But if all you do is shoot to get the, do the bare minimum to get the A in the first place, you may fall short when unexpected natures arise. You may shoot for an A and find yourself with a C instead by accident. And that's kind of what I feel like happened to the foolish bridesmaids in this story. They brought just enough oil so that when the groom came, at the time that they thought he was supposed to come, they would be fine. But things don't go as smoothly, they don't go as expected, and the bridesmaids who had brought that minimum amount of oil didn't have enough and were left to fend for themselves. I want to go back to this perspective that we can take part in the wedding feast now in our lives today, because I think this is where the heart of where I've been thinking about this, this, this passage. True living in the kingdom is available to us because of Jesus' sacrifice. I think that is true from our word. We can be living this life as followers to the maximum. To bring it back to my story at the beginning, right? There is camping and there is camping, right? And you may know what true camping looks like. The idea might be, can we know what true living in this life that God calls us to looks like? What if so many of us as followers are coasting through this life? We pray uh, when we feel like it. Uh, We read the word when Mark and others kind of read with us um, as they preach on Sundays. We come on Sunday mornings. We sing with Brett and the band. Um, We even volunteer. We attend city groups. Uh, None of those things are bad. All of those things are good. But what if we're just doing the bare minimum to feel like and look like a Christian for God to accept us? Or even maybe for some of you, we can replace the Christian label with we're doing enough just to be a good person so that God will accept us. What if Jesus is inviting us to a greater goal than just entrance into heaven in the future? What if he says that kingdom work can be done right now to the best of its abilities? that we can be fixing the social injustices that we see. We can be feeding the poor. We can be giving a name and voice to the nameless and the voiceless. We can be having life-changing conversations with our friends and families and coworkers who don't know Christ, and we can give them the gospel. We can be intentionally living lives of, I'll quote uh, Matt Chandler, of radical hospitality and generosity. We can be praying with such a fervor that miracles happen before our eyes. Jesus has said that these things are available to us, that we can actually change the world, or at least that oikos, the sphere of influence that we find ourselves in. Yes, heaven is important, but I wonder how many, many of us just want to get through this life to get there, as opposed to embracing this life to the full that we live. As always, perhaps I'm just preaching to myself, as I, as I would say I would often do, because I feel this tension all the time. I have my family and I have my job and I have my responsibilities and I just need to get through the day sometimes. Then I wonder if I'm doing all of these things in a way just to do the bare minimum for God while giving a lot of my time and efforts to myself um, or the idols that I've built up instead. And it'd be easier if this life was easier, right? Like I would pray more if praying consistently was easy. Does that sound bad? Um, Like I would read the Bible more consistently if I was consistent in reading, Uh, I would share my faith and challenge colleagues and students and family members of mine if those conversations weren't scary and awkward at best. I would make human trafficking and slavery go away if I felt like I could, or at least if I felt like I could do it uh, and still have time for the rest of my life. I think the groom's delay to midnight, no less, this crisis, unexpected part of the story is telling If everything happens on schedule, it would be a lot easier to do this Christian thing. But Jesus is making a clear distinction to expect the unexpected. We live in a world where things don't happen the way we expect or often want them to. Prayers go unanswered, so we lose motivation and faith, and then we end up just going through the motions, and we tell people we'll pray for them, and then we just kind of fail at even that. Reading the Bible sounds easy, but then, like, what's going on in this book, right? This passage is very difficult and confusing to my modern ears, and you're, so you're saying I need context and literary knowledge and, like, modern original Greek language, that is it, whatever, just to understand what's going on? Like, I don't have time for that. And I've taken the proactive step of sharing my own story and my faith with a friend so they could immediately be receptive to the gospel, Right? But that conversation was weird, and they're not texting me back now. And so I feel ashamed of my own beliefs, and wouldn't it have just been easier to avoid this conversation in the first place and have my beliefs and their beliefs and just coexist in a lovely way? Like, I'm a new creation in Christ, right? So I need to get this sanctification on. It's okay, so let's get rid of some of these internal demons that I struggle with, and for a couple of weeks I'm doing really good, and then... It's strange. It seems as if even though I'm a Christian now and I dwell with the Holy Spirit, like temptation hasn't gone away. And sometimes it feels like it's even harder to follow God and his commands now that I believe. So what if instead I just ask for forgiveness because like, you know, we know uh, there's like a 0% chance I'm going to be perfect anyway. Um, But like forgiveness is also hard to do. Uh, so Jesus' sacrifice covered my sins, all of them, right? Past, present, and future. So can I just like rely on that and not worry too much about it and just be a good person anyway, and then we'll be fine. I could keep going very sarcastically about the things that I struggle with. And these are some of what we might call the relatively basic things of this world. But I think you get the point, right? That life in this kingdom is hard on its own, And so it becomes really easy to coast as a Christian, and sadly, the longer I think that we live this life, oftentimes the easier it can be to coast. As a result, again, it might just be myself talking to myself, but you know, Jesus calls us to be prepared for crisis, so it doesn't bog us down and surprise us. What does it mean to be prepared for when life gets hard? Uh, It reminds me a bit of a project that we're doing in one of my classes right now about behavior modification. where we talk about, hey, like, pick a behavior you want to change and use some psychology principles to kind of, you know, be the best you, right? Uh, Why I mention this this assignment in our class is that we talk in class that oftentimes the hardest time to plan for self-control or whatever it is, the the good behavior that we want to promote, is when you're in the deepest temptation. That's not a time for planning, right? Um, I'll give you just a, a fake example just to, I think, make this make sense a little bit. Like, let's say I want to quit smoking, How do I do it? One option is I just stop doing it. Wonderful, right? But then I feel this strong urge to smoke, and now that I'm in the middle of the deepest temptation to smoke, um, what's my plan? If I don't have a plan, I'll tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm not going to take that moment to weigh the pros and cons of my decision to smoke or not. I'm just going to smoke, right? And so to make plans for the behaviors that you want to promote means taking a few steps back when things are easy, when you're in the safe space, and creating plans for yourself because you know yourself, because we know the situations and the sensations and the mental thoughts that trigger us. And we can place roadblocks in place to help make our decisions easier when we get there so that we're not trying to swim in a storm when we could have built a boat ahead of time. In the same way, I think that we need to be prepared for the kingdom, not just for quitting smoking, when things are going well and things seem relatively easy. Because when life gets really hard, we will not use those moments now to plan. This means knowing yourself and knowing how to best prepare yourself, set aside the time that you know you have that you can manage for prayer and Bible study, and set that time when your schedule is relatively light, and then keep it, when your schedule starts to fill up. Create a list of prayers for other people and yourself and your family to stay perseverant on when you feel faithful. And then the key, stick to those prayers when you start to doubt. Pray for the specific people in your life that there would be opportunities to talk to them, to share stories about what Jesus is doing in your life today. Pray that you may know or that they may come to know the love and the grace and the truth and peace of Christ. And then stick to those prayers when opportunities arrive, so that you might be ready to have a conversation with somebody that could change their world. You can't prepare for every situation. In fact, most situations will never know they're coming. But you can take advantage of some seasons to plan for those that are going to be a little bit more troubling. And what we know is that other people and their involvement in your life is paramount to a lot of this ability to actually make a change in your behavior. If you're the only person who knows your plans, you're likely going to fail because you're your own arbiter, right? If you even tell other people about your plans, you have enough social cash to kind of increase your own self-control, right? I can't fail, they know. If you give people the power to hold you accountable, even better, And I think this is why it's so important that the 12 disciples had each other and why Paul had Barnabas and Mark and Timothy on his journeys and all the other people to rely on. It's like how we talk about oxen being yoked together, right? If you are an ox and you have no one else and you stumble, there's no one to help you lift you back up. But if oxen are yoked together as one stumbles, the other one helps them rise. And we know we are to be yoked, not just to Christ, but to the body, involve others. All of this is maybe a large roundabout stream of consciousness way of saying that maybe my interpretation for this parable is that the wedding feast is this ultimate life in the kingdom that Christ has called us to. We can be prepared for this in some way, or we can choose to do the bare minimum in our lives. When the unexpected or the crisis hits, if we're not prepared, we can attack this life head on. We can live this life to the fullest, to what God and Jesus has called us to. If we're not prepared, well, it's, it's more likely that we do the spiritual equivalent of running away and we miss out on the fullness that life had offered us. If we want to, be, uh, if we want to experience the feast, Jesus calls us to be prepared. As I call the band back up, I just want to hark on this midnight detail one last time. If you read closely through the Gospels, you see time and time again that Jesus is a lawnmower parent who makes sure that the disciples' lives are easy because... No, 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 that's not what happens. More often than not, Jesus calls his disciples into storms, purposefully, Because those are the moments that generate the best in them and in those around them. It is such a misnomer that this life was supposed to be easy for us. But somehow we get this idea that then Christianity will make our lives even easier. Jesus said to pick up your cross. Pick up your cross. (laughs) Jesus said to pick up your cross. Suffering is a given and trouble awaits us. And that is not the peachy ending to this Sunday that we wanted. But trouble came for the disciples too. Their entire world post-sacrifice of Jesus was a big, big, utter tribulation. I think in some ways Jesus was trying to tell them in the parable, like, hey, before I die and the entire world crumbles around you and you're running for your lives literally all of the time, prepare for that moment now, And be ready for when it comes so that you can change the world through me. They did. That's our church history, right? We can too. Let's pray. God, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your call. And I thank you that you have opened this life for the best for us. I don't know what that looks like, I know what that looks like for me sometimes. I have no idea what it looks like for my friends, but I pray that as all of us think and that all of us dwell in the people and the situations and the thoughts that rise to us, that you would embolden us to act, that you would embolden us to do, um, that we would live into the life that you've